You are listening to Dr. P's Daily Time Machine, episode 68, Dracula. Hello and welcome back to the Time Machine. Today we will continue focusing on the career of Orson Welles. However, first I'd like to take a quick sidebar, so if you'd like to just go ahead and listen to the episode, feel free to skip to three minutes. So, I would like to apologize for the very interrupted upload schedule here on the Time Machine. It's a one-man operation, and this man has been struggling with a lot of mental health issues for the past few months. I'm lucky to have been surrounded by some very encouraging family and early supporters uh, like Mark and A.B., I'm also lucky to find solace in these stories and the way that they can take you away to somewhere you've never been, all just while you're sitting in traffic driving to work. Well, I hope you do too. And that is what keeps the time machine running. So in addition to a full week of episodes where we will actually cover Orson Welles, I'll add a bonus episode made for Patreon that was recorded last week and should show up in your feeds by the time this is published. If you're already a subscriber to Patreon or through Spotify, you would have already heard this episode before, so Mark, that goes for you. Now enough of that, onto the episode. So on this episode, we will travel back to 1938 for what Mr. Wells is probably most famous for other than Citizen Kane his role as a writer, director, and star. Now normally this would have broken any other 23-year-old man, but by age 23, Orson was already considered one of the greatest Broadway writers and directors in the world. In this episode, we will go visit Mercury Radio Theater for the first theatrical adaptation for radio of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I have struggled for years to get into classic literature, and I'm sure I've attempted Dracula numerous times throughout my life. Well, leave it to Mr. Wells to finally tell a tale in a quote-unquote more modern way. (laughs) Keep in mind that this is their very first episode aired, all the way back on July 11th, 1938. So please sit back and hear the unabridged version of Mercury Radio Theater on the air of Dracula. The Columbia Network takes pride in presenting Orson Welles in the first production of a unique new summer series by the Mercury Theater on the Air. single year, the first in the life of the Mercury Theater, Orson Welles has come to be the most famous name of our time in American drama. Says Collier's Magazine, 23-year-old Orson Welles threw a bombshell into Broadway. Robert Benchley writes in The New Yorker, the production of the Mercury is, I should say, just about perfect. Time Magazine declares, the brightest moon that has risen over Broadway in years. Welles should feel at home in the sky, 
for the sky is the only limit which his ambitions recognize. And finally, the United Press remarked, Meteoric rise of Orson Welles' Mercury Theater continues unabated. With four hit shows in its first year, the Mercury might well close its door on a season unparalleled in Broadway history. But Mr. Wells has long been working on a project for a greater audience. The Broadways of the entire United States. The Columbia Network is proud to give Orson Welles the opportunity to bring to the air those same qualities of vitality and imagination that have made him the most talked of theatrical director in America today. And it is this project which Columbia brings you this summer. The first time in its history that radio has ever extended such an invitation to an entire theatrical institution. But here is Orson Welles himself to tell you about it. The director of the Mercury Theater, the star and producer of these programs, Orson Welles. Good evening. We're starting off tonight with the best story of its kind ever written. You will find it in every representative library of classic English narratives. It is Bram Stoker's Dracula. The next time I speak to you, I am Dr. Arthur Seward. George Galuris plays Jonathan Harker, and Martin Gable plays Dr. Van Helsing. It is Dr. Seward who tells the story, and so for the moment... Goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. I'll see you in Transylvania. The Mercury Theater on the Air presents Orson Welles as Count Dracula in his own version of Bram Stoker's great novel, Dracula. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Arthur Seward. I'm here tonight to bear witness to the truth of certain events which you may find it hard to believe, but I ask you to believe them. I have here certain documents, telegrams, clippings from the press of the day, memoranda, and letters in various hands. All needless matters have been eliminated, so that a history almost at variance with the possibilities of contemporary belief may stand forth as simple fact. I present you first with excerpts from the private journal of Jonathan Harker. I, Jonathan Harker, lawyer's clerk, article to Peter Hawkins, Esquire of Exeter, England, am writing this journal in the hope that if misfortune overtakes me, it may one day come to the eyes of those who love me. I set out from London on the last day of April to visit one of our clients in Eastern Europe. On May the 3rd, I arrived in Budapest and came after nightfall to Klausenburg on the borders of Transylvania. At Bistritz, there was a letter of welcome for me from our client, informing me that his carriage would await me at the Borgo Pass. It was signed, Dracula. Young hair. This is the Borga Pass. 
clouds overhead, and in the air the heavy, oppressive sense of thunder. Now we were through the past. The young hare is not expected after all. tonight, my friend. A calèche with four horses are drawn up beside us. Let me help you, sir. The coachman smiled, and the lamplight fell on a hard-looking mouth with very red lips and sharp-looking teeth as white as ivory. We began to move. I looked back. The coach and its load of passengers had vanished from sight. We swept into the darkness of the past. Struck a match. It was within a few minutes of midnight. And then a dog began to howl somewhere far down the road. The wind was rising, moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees crashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall. The baying of wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though, as though they were closing round us to every side. We kept on ascending, always ascending. The howling of wolves was growing less. Presently, it ceased altogether. And just then, the moon broke through the black clouds. I saw around us a ring of wolves running alongside the carriage. In silence, with white teeth and lolling red tongues, with long sinuated limbs and shaggy hair. Welcome to my house. I must have fallen asleep. The carriage had pulled up in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle. The coachman was nowhere to be seen. Welcome to my house. Come freely. Go safely. And leave something of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. The face was strong. Very strong. Aquiline. The mouth, so far as I could see under the heavy mustache, was fixed and rather cruel looking with... Peculiarly sharp white teeth. Hmm. You hear them, Mr. Harker? Uh, the wolves? The children of the night, as you say, Mr. Harker. The wolves. Listen. Hmm. Come now. There are many things you must tell me tomorrow. Of England and of the estate there you have purchased for me. Ah, uh, yes. The estate is called Carfax, I believe. Yes, that is so. But now I will detain you no longer. You will find your room in readiness. And I advise you not to leave it during the night. This castle is on the very edge of a terrible precipice. A stone falling from the window would fall a thousand feet without touching anything. I explored. There are doors. Doors, doors everywhere, and all of them locked. The door to the great hall, the door to the courtyard, every door in the castle is closed, bolted against me. The castle of Dracula is a prison, and I am a prisoner. The next night I couldn't sleep, so after a few hours I got up and lighting my candle, I placed my shaving mirror on the dressing table and was... Just beginning to shave. You seem restless, Mr. Harker. I hadn't seen him. Although the reflection of the glass covered the whole room behind me. I turned to the glass again. I could see him over my shoulder, but... There was no reflection of him in the mirror. 
It was blank. I started and cut myself on the side of the throat. The blood was trickling down my neck. Hold my mirror. The blood. The blood. Wipe the blood from your face, Mr. Harker. And take care how you cut yourself. It is more dangerous than you think in this country. When I woke, I found most of my things were gone. My passport, my notes, my letter of credit. I could find no trace of them anywhere. And my door is locked from the outside. June 20th. There is work of some kind going on in the castle. Now and then, I hear the faraway muffled sound of mattock and spade. And last night, the second of the predated letters which Dracula made me write, the second of that series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth went forth. Count Dracula. Yes, my young friend. Well, what of me? When am I free? When can I leave this place? Free? Mr. Harker, you're always free. You want to leave? Would you like to leave tonight? Yes, yes, in God's name. My dear young friend, not an hour shall you wait in my house against your will. Come, follow me. Hmm. The door seems to be bolted. How strange. The door is locked. Well, in God's name, open it. As you will, Mr. Harker. You English have a proverb which is very close to my heart. Welcome the coming, speed the parting guest. Good night, Mr. Harker. The door is shut, Mr. Harker. I take it. You will remain. Morning, June the 30th. These may be the last words I ever write in this diary. Oh, God preserve my sanity. I have never seen Count Dracula by day. At sunrise, at the first cock crow, he is gone. I... I do not understand these things. I only know that the wolves obey him, and that he is a man with hair on the palm of his hands, with sharp teeth, and no blood in his face. He casts no shadow. He cannot be seen in a glass. And he moves like a bat across the sheer face of the castle walls. He eats no food and is mortally afraid of the crucifix. As I write this, I hear in the courtyard the rolling of heavy wheels and the cracking of whips. And there is in the passageway below a sound of heavy boxes being set down. Boxes shaped like coffins. And I know what they hold. Boxes are filled with holy earth from the chapel beneath the castle. Box being nailed down. And now I hear the heavy feet tramping again. The door shut, the chains rattle. In the courtyard and down the rocky way, the roll of heavy wheels, the crack of whips. The wagons have gone. I'm alone in the castle. 
I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone in the castle. I'm alone. I'm alone. I'm alone. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Seward. Mr. Harker's journal terminates at this point. I now present in evidence a clipping dated August 8th of that year from the Yorkshire Telegraph from our correspondent in Whitby. One of the greatest and suddenest storms on record was experienced here today. The weather has been somewhat sultry, but Saturday evening was fine. The band was playing. The piers were crowded with holidaymakers. The wind fell away entirely during the evening, and there was a dead calm. There were but few lights at sea. The only sail noticeable was a foreign schooner under full canvas, which was seemingly going westward. A little after midnight came a strange sound from over the sea, and high overhead the air began to carry a strange, faint, hollow booming. Then, without warning, the tempest broke. And there, with all sails set, was the foreign schooner rushing with terrific speed toward the shore. A searchlight was turned on her. And there, lashed to the helm, was a corpse with drooping head which swayed horribly to and fro at each motion of the ship. A moment later, she crashed. And then a strange thing was seen. At the very instant she touched, a huge dog sprang up on deck from below and running forward, jumped from the bow onto the sand and making straight up the east cliff toward the graveyard, vanished into the night. The coast guard going aboard at dawn found the dead man fastened to a spoke of the wheel. Tightly clutched in one hand was a crucifix. The man must have been dead for quite two days. In the pocket of the dead man's coat was found a bottle, carefully corked, containing a roll of paper. This proved to be an addendum to the ship's log. There was found on board only a small amount of cargo and that of a most unusual nature. Apparently the ship carried nothing but earth. Common earth. Packed away in wooden boxes. Shaped much like coffins. Demeter. July 6th. Finished taking in cargo, a queer cargo, boxes of earth. At noon, set sail, east wind, fresh, crew, four hands, two mates, cook, and myself, captain. July 11th. Entered Bosporus. At dark, passed through Dardanelles. Mate reported in morning that one of crew, Valyodin, was missing. Took Larbert watch eight bells last night. He was relieved by Chilich. Never came to his There's something aboard oh. this ship. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Don't laugh, Captain. In the rain last night. Oh. A tall, thin man go up companionway and along the deck forward and disappeared. When I go to the bow, no one. And the hatchways all closed. July 22nd. Rough weather last three days. All hands busy with sails. No time be frightened. Past Gibraltar and out through straits. All well, July 24th. Last night, another hand was lost. Disappeared. My Chilean, leave all watch midnight. Then we never see him again. What double watch now? If I don't take watch alone no more. Double watch. Double watch. July 29th. Had single watch tonight as crew too tired to double. When morning comes... Hey! Hey, Milo! Barangay! Barangay! Is Barangay, Milo? 
like Dios. Like all Dios. The mate and I have agreed to go armed henceforth, July 30th. Last night, we are nearing England. Weather fine. All sails set. Captain! Captain! The man in the watch is missing! Both missing! Now, only self and mate and one hand left to work ship. August 3rd. Two days of fog and not a sail sighted. At midnight, I went to relieve the man at wheel. And when I got to it, found no one there. It's here. I know it now. I saw it. Like a man, tall and thin and ghastly pale. It was in the bars looking out. I gave it the knife and my knife went through it. What? Empty as air. What is it? What are you talking about? It's here. And I'll find it. It's in the hold. In one of those boxes of earth. I'll unscrew them one by one and see. And see. He is mad. Stark raving mad. It's no use my trying to stop him. He can't hurt those big boxes. They are invoiced as common earth. I know the secret now. The sea will save me from him. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. August 4th. I am all alone on my ship. And still the fog. I dared not go below. I dared not leave the helm. So here all night I stayed... And in the dimness of the night, I saw it. I saw him. God forgive me, but the mate was right to jump overboard. It was better to die like a sailor in the blue water. But I am captain, and I must not leave my ship. I shall tie my hands to the wheel when my strength begins to fail. And along with them I shall tie that which it dare not touch. My crucifix. I am growing weaker. And the night is coming on. God and the Blessed Virgin help a poor ignorant soul trying to do his duty. Seaward, Perfit, to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. Lucy was Tenra in alarming condition. Cannot diagnose. Come at once. Seward. Telegram, Van Helsing, Amsterdam, to Seward, Perfit. I'm on my way to you. Please arrange the examination patient immediately my arrival, Van Helsing. Ladies and gentlemen, I must now explain that six months before the events recorded here, I had become engaged to a young lady, Lucy was Tenra. We were to have been married in the spring. My old teacher, Professor Van Helsing, arrived at four the next afternoon. I took him at once to Lucy's house. She lay in a bed asleep. She was ghastly, chalkily pale. The red seemed to have grown even from her lips and gums. And the bones of her face stood out. Young Miss is bad. Very bad. She must have blood or she will die. 
Yet she is not anemic. The qualitative analysis of her blood gives quite normal condition. It is strange. I do not like to think how strange. Look! My God, her throat, look! The black velvet band that she always wore had dragged up a little and showed a red mark on her throat. Just over the external jugular vein were two punctures, not large, but not wholesome-looking. The edges were white and worn-looking. Well? Well, what is it, Professor? What's wrong with her? Speak frankly. You can tell me the worst. I wish I could, Stuart. I wish I could. But I do not dare. But won't you tell me any, anything? I will tell you this. Your young lady is in a danger greater than death. You must believe me. If you leave her for one moment and harm befalls, you will not sleep easy thereafter. September 8th. I sat up all night with Lucy. Arthur, I'm afraid. My dear, you can sleep tonight. I'm here watching you. Nothing can happen. And I promise if any sign of bad dreams, if I see anything, I'll wake you at once. You will? Will you really? Then I'll sleep. I sat all night by her bedside. She did not wake once during the night, although... Her brows or a bat or something flapped almost angrily against the window panes. September 11th. Still quoting from my private journals. At this time that I received a message from Perfleet. Read 10.20 p.m. St. John's Hospital. Serious complications. Case 891. Your immediate presence, London. Imperative. I had no choice. Sometime later, a paper was found among Lucy Westenra's belongings. I write this and leave it to be seen so that no one may by any chance get into trouble through me. I went to bed as usual, taking care that the window was closed, as Dr. Van Helsing had directed. About two in the morning, I awakened. I went to the door, called out, Arthur! Arthur! There was no answer. Something's broken the window. I'm in the room, alone. I dare not go out. The house seems empty. The air is full of specks, floating, circling in the draft from the window. And the light burns blue, dim. What am I to do? Something very sweet and very bitter all around me. I seem sinking into deep water. You shall be flesh of my flesh. Blood of my blood. Ah. September 12th. Late. Only resolution and habit can let me make an entry tonight. We found her sprawled on the floor. There was a draft in the room from the broken window. Her throat was bare, showing the two wounds. Looking horribly white and mangled. We are too late, my friend. We have failed. God's will be done. She's dying. Yes. 
she's dying. Stay beside her. It will make much difference, Marty. Whether she dies conscious or in her sleep. And then, insensibly, a strange change came over her. Her eyes grew suddenly dull and hard. Her breathing was heavy. The mouth opened and the pale gums drawn back made the teeth look large and sharp. Arthur, oh, my love, I'm so glad you've come. Kiss me. Bend down and kiss me. Not for your life. Not for your living soul and hers. <laughs> Lucy. She's dead. Only the beginning. Wait and see. The Westminster Gazette, September 25th. A Hempstead mystery. The Kensington Horror, the stabbing woman, and the woman in black are vividly recalled to mind by a series of events that have taken place recently in the neighborhood of Hempstead. Several cases have occurred of young children straying from home or failing to return from their playing on the heath. In all these cases, the children have given us their excuse that they have been with a beautiful lady who offered them chocolates. In each case, the child was found to be slightly torn or wounded in the throat. The wound seems such as might be made by a rat or a small dog. The Hempstead Horror. Another child injured by the beautiful lady. We have just received intelligence that another child missed last night was only discovered late in the morning. It has the same tiny wound in the throat. Well, Stuart, what do you think of that? You mean to tell me, my friend, that you still have no suspicion as to what poor Lucy died of? Nervous prostration, following great loss and waste of blood. And how was the blood lost or wasted? You are a clever man, my friend, and a good doctor. But you do not believe that there are things that you cannot understand... You are wrong, Stuart. Are you aware of all the mysteries of life and death? Can you tell me why in the pampas there are bats that come at night and open the veins of cattle and horses and suck dry those veins? Hmm? How in some islands of the western seas there are bats which hang on trees all day and then when the sailors sleep on deck because it is hot, flip down on them? And then in the morning, I found dead men, as white as Miss Lucy was. I understand none of these things. Up to tonight, Stuart. If you dare to come with me, perhaps then you will understand. 
September 29th. Before dawn. And it is done. And I would sooner die a thousand deaths than live again through what I did this night. We will spend the night, you and I, here in this churchyard where Miss Lucy is buried. We enter the tomb, then we open the coffin. You shall yet be convinced. Take care, Van Helsing. Miss Lucy is dead, is it not so? Then there can be no wrong to her, but if she is not dead. With some difficulty, we found the West End tomb. I took up my place behind a yew tree on one side of the tomb, Van Helsing on the other. I was chilled and frightened. Suddenly, I saw something moving between two yew trees, a dim white figure which held something at its breast. The figure stopped. I could not see the face, for it was bent down over what I saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep, or a dog as it lies before the fire and dreams. Then the thing saw us. She drew back with an angry snarl. The lovely blood-stained mouth grew to an open square. If ever a face meant death, I saw it at that moment. Then suddenly she turned vanished in the direction of the tomb. Child is not harmed. We leave him in a safe place where the police find him. There's more to do. Come. Now we were in the tomb. There in the coffin. The thing lay. Like a nightmare of Lucy, the pointed teeth, the blood-stained mouth. Then Helsing never looked up. From his bag, he took out a book, his operating knives, a heavy hammer, and a round wooden stake. Some two or three inches thick. Sharpened to a fine point and hardened over a fire. Stuart! The life of this unhappy woman is just begun. When she become what you call undead, there comes with the change the curse of immortality. She cannot die, but must go on age after age, adding new victims. Because all that die from the praying of the undead become themselves undead and prey on others. So the circle goes on, ever widening as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water. But... If this lady, this undead, be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall be again free. Tell me, what am I to do? Take this stake in your left hand, the hammer in your right. Yes. Place the point over the heart. Yes. Then, when I begin the prayer for the dead, in God's name, strive. Are you ready? Now, Domine Jesu Christe, Fili de Vivi, Kim Mans Tuas Ex Voluntate Patri. On the morning of July 11th, a man was found on the border of Transylvania. He talked wildly of wolves and boxes of earth and blood. He gave his name as Jonathan Harker. In the hospital at Klausenberg, he improved sufficiently to make possible his removal to England. I'm still quoting from my own personal papers. But there his condition remained so serious that he was committed for observation to a private ward in my hospital at Perthite. Here he did so well 
that in three weeks he was completely recovered. It was during this time that his wife, Minna Harker, brought to the attention of Dr. Van Helsing and myself the journal that her husband had kept while a prisoner in the castle of a certain Count Dracula in Transylvania. I have before me the record of a meeting that took place in my study in Perthleet, transcribed by Minna Harker. October 1st. Meeting again soon after 8. Jonathan next to me. Dr. Seward opposite to Van Helsing at the head of the table. My friends, there are such things as vampires. Had I known at first what now I know, one so precious life had been spared to many of us who love her. The vampire which is amongst us is of himself so strong that he can direct all the elements. The storm, the fog, the thunder. He can command all the meaner things. The moth and bat. The owl and the fox and the wolf. How then are we to begin our strike to destroy him? How shall we find his place? And having found it, how can we destroy him? My friends, it is a terrible task that we undertake. To fail here is not mere life or death. If we fail, we become as him. Foul things of the night as him. What do you say? I answer for myself. Come in. I'm with you. The professor laid a small golden crucifix on the table. We took hands, and our solemn pact was made. My friends, we too are not without strength. The vampire flourishes on the blood of the living. Without this, he cannot live. He throws no shadow. He makes no reflection in a mirror. He can transform himself to a wolf, to a bat. He can come on moonlight rays as elemental dust he can see in the dark. He can do all these things. Yet he is not free his power ceases at the coming of the day. Then, until night, he must remain in the shape in which he finds himself and except in his coffin home, in those earth boxes he cannot rest. When we can confine him in his coffin, then, my friends, if we obey what we know, we will destroy him. At that moment, something flapped wildly against the window, then. Did you hit it? I don't know. We looked out of the window. Against the black sky, we could see nothing. Data in our position. From the town's castle in Transylvania to Whitby came 50 boxes of earth. All of these, to our certain knowledge, were delivered at Carfax. Recently, 12 of these boxes have been removed. First step... Ascertain whether all the rest remain in the deserted house next door or whether any more have been removed. We must trace each of these boxes and sterilize the earth with holy water so that he can no longer seek safety in it. And we must hurry. The events of the next few days are described in Jonathan Harker's journal. October 2nd, 5 a.m. Just returned from the empty house. Left Mina here at home. Well, we've done our work at Carfax. The place was filthy. Yes, stagnant and foul and alive with rats. We counted the boxes. Only 38 of them. And over each one, the professor went through his same mysterious work. It was dawn when we got back. I found Mina asleep. She looks paler than usual. 
October 2nd. Soon after they left, I fell asleep. I remember hearing the sudden barking of the dogs. And then, there was silence. I got up and looked out of the window. There was a thin streak of white mist moving across the grass along the wall of the house. It dawned on me that the air in the room was heavy and dank and cold. The gaslight came only like a tiny red spark through the fog. I could see through my eyelids. The mist grew thicker and thicker. Then, as I looked, the spark divided and seemed to shine on me through the fog like two red eyes. Second, 8 p.m. They're on the track. Twelve boxes were delivered last week to an empty house at 347 Piccadilly. My dear friends, until the sun sets tonight, Dracula must retain whatever form he now has. We have this day to hunt out all his lairs and sterilize them. Then he will have no place where he can move and hide. But we have only until sunset. The house in Piccadilly was empty. Like the one at Perthley, the same sickening smell was in the air. On a table, we found a clothes brush, a brush, and a comb, and a basin. The latter containing dirty water, which was reddened as if with blood. The boxes are back here. Eight, nine, ten. Eleven. Only eleven. There's a twelfth box somewhere. Gentlemen, it is after six. The sun is setting. We have no time to lose. He will return at any moment. Open the boxes. when somehow I feel that I'm with him. At sunset, 
evening. We're due between two and three in the morning, but already at Bucharest, we are three hours late. Zarina Katrina. A man come aboard with an order an hour before sunup to receive a box for a party by the name of Dracula. That is papers are eight. Uh, Emmanuel Hillsheim, his name was. Mr. Hillsheim? Yes. You went out of the box yesterday. I get the Kailov by order. Kailov. Mr. Kailov? Hello. This morning they find him dead inside the churchyard of St. Peter. They find him dead. With his throat torn open. October 30th evening. There are two ways in which Dracula can get back to his own place. By land or by water. We've examined the map and find the most likely river is the Serra. You and I see what will charter a steam launch and follow him up the river. Van Helsing and Mina will take the train to Veresti and from there they will from go... there we shall go in the track where Harker went from district over to Porgo. If you have not caught him before, we shall be awaiting Dracula there. There's plenty of water and the banks are wide apart. November 1st, evening. No news all day. We hear that a big boat went up the river before us, going at more than usual speed. November 4th. All day driving. The country gets wilder as we go. By morning we shall reach the Borgo Park. November the 4th, evening. We've left the launch. We've got horses and we follow on the track along the river. We are armed. Look! Quick! There they are now! Heading west! With the dawn, we could see the Slovaks some miles before us, dashing along the river with their wagons. On it is the great box. Jammed against the stone. 
The horses tore loose from their traces and bolted, and the Slovaks scatter and vanish after them. Then silence. Silence like comes uh, after ringing a bell. Look. His face. It is Dracula. Sprawled out stiff and twisted in the smear of his own holy earth. The box, in falling, has emptied the dirt onto the snow. His face is old-looking. The skin is like paper. Dr. Seward, there's no time. Look at the sun. Sunset. In one minute there is darkness and he is forever lost to us. Have you the stake of wood and the hammer? Yeah. Now, Seward, pray for us. Kneel down and pray. Harker, the stake of wood over his heart. Be not afraid, Harker. Do not look into his eyes. The hammer. Now, Harker, strike. Strike. Flesh. Flesh of my flesh. Guilt of my guilt. Death of my death. Speak and be manifest in the instant of your master's peril. Elements of darkness. and the hammer out of my hands with the strength of an animal. Mina, do you know what you've done, woman? Do you know what you've done to us? You've released him, the evil is weak. Look! The sun! As we looked down at Dracula, the eyes saw the sinking sun and the hate in them turned to triumph. Flesh of my flesh. Come to me, my love. Come into the night and the darkness. You have served me well, my love. My bride. Ladies and 
and gentlemen, all the evidence in this case is now before you. I've added nothing. And to the best of my knowledge, I've omitted nothing that might help to throw light on the extraordinary events of the year 1891, which culminated on that terrible evening in the Borgo Pass. There remains only this one last report. When Nina Hager seized the stake and hammer from her husband, I believe she was under some form of hypnosis. She herself remembers nothing. But whatever influence was at work on her, she must, at the last moment, have rejected it. For at the exact instant the sun disappeared, it was Mina Harker who drove the stake through the heart of the thing that called itself Dracula. At that same instant, even as we looked, the wound on the side of her throat was no more. As for Dracula, before the scream of the creature had died from our ears, the whole body crumbled into dust and passed from our sight. In the final moment of dissolution, there was in the face a look of peace such as I never could have imagined might have rested there. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to rate and subscribe. And as always, we'll see you tomorrow for more great episodes from the past.